Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, it's Matt McLaughlin, and thank you for joining me for a very special episode of the podcast. We've recently launched a brand new podcast series called Battle Walks. And as the name suggests, Battle Walks is all about getting out and exploring the great battlefields of Europe in a virtual sense. It's hosted by me and battlefield historian Peter Smith. And together, we get out and walk the ground and tell the stories of the men who fought and died on some of the most famous battlefields in the world. We're going to explore battlefields from the First World War, from the Second World War, from ancient times, from all eras and in all parts of Europe. It's going to be a really exciting series. So I wanted to bring you a a bit of a preview, a bit of a bonus episode. So this is an episode we recorded recently on walking the battlefield of the Somme, one of the most famous battlefields from modern history. And I'd encourage you, if you enjoy this episode, to subscribe. Jump onto Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you find your podcast, wherever you're listening to this now, and look for Battle Walks and subscribe because each week we're going to release a new Battlefield Walk and we're just absolutely loving doing them. So enjoy this bonus episode of Battle Walks and I'll talk to you soon. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're Battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to Battle Walks. Thank you for joining us yet again to walk across some of the amazing battlefields of Europe. As always, I'm joined by my colleague and friend, Pete Smith. Pete, welcome back. Hi, Matt. Yeah, good to be with you again. Today, mate, we're heading to the Somme. We uh, we haven't done a walk in the Somme before. We're heading down to France, this most iconic battlefield. When we talk about the First World War, the Western Front, most people's minds wander immediately to the Battle of the Somme. And today we're going to explore a key part of that battlefield, aren't we? Yeah, we are indeed. Uh, we're going to be looking at the 1st of July, uh, one section of the battlefield from the 1st of July. And, f- and for, the, for the Brits, the 1st of July, the worst day in British military history really, really kind of holds us. It holds us. And if anybody's even slightly interested in the Great War, then it's it's that date, the 1st of July, 1916. That's the date that that, that, that keeps bringing you back. Well, Pete, why don't we start by you giving us your very brief overview of just why this battle occurred and what happened on this iconic day of the 1st of July, 1916. Okay, this is just just a general overview. Um, Britain joins the First World War. 
the British Army expected to be near to the coast. They expected when the line solidified, they expected to be near to the coast. It's a traditional area where Britain has always fought in in France and and Belgium. Um, But that's not going to be the case. In 1915, really, the French were under such terrible pressure at Verdun that uh, there was a request, perhaps an order, depends how you view it, that Britain should take more of the line. In other words, we we should extend our line away from the coast, across uh, Flanders, the Flanders Plains, and up onto the ridges around uh, Arras, and then over those ridges and onto the Somme. The reason for doing that is that's going to free up French troops to be uh, dispatched to assist the French fighting around Verdun. And it's also, if we assault at these positions on the Somme ridges, then it's going to hold the German reserves here. Or, or, or even better, it's going to cause Germans to be brought from Verdun across to here. So in other words, it's assisting the French. So the Battle of the Somme is really a, a, an attempt by us to, to aid the French at Verdun and also to start a breakthrough. They're hoping that this is going to be a breakthrough as well. So if we're going to organise a, a diversionary attack, which is effectively, this is an enormous diversionary attack, then we might as well try and do more than that and break through. So that's the, just a general overview of, of why the Battle of the Somme takes place on the 1st of July uh, in 1916. Of course, it's not just a one-day action. The battle itself is going to run from the 1st of July until the 18th of November. So it's an enormous long battle. But we're, we're interested today, we're going to be looking at the 1st of July. And tell us just about how that battle went. Tell us about on the 1st of July how it was supposed to go, what the plan was, and, and how that battle actually went on that morning. Well, the battle itself, the 1st of July, we, we have objectives, and uh, the, the objectives were not overly strenuous for the, for the 1st of July, and it was hoped that we would break through the, the Germans. On the frontage, and the frontage is quite long. It's 23 uh, kilometres, or quite wide, 23 kilometres of frontage. So it's not just a, in a small area, it's a big area, and there is a hopeful that we will get success with minimal casualties. And the idea was to bombard the Germans, to drive them underground, to kill them, to smash the barbed wire, uh, and then for us to walk across no man's land almost uh, uh, unassisted because the Germans will all be dead or driven underground. And of course, that's not going to be the case. Uh, the Germans are in much deeper uh, chambers underground than we expect. The barbed wire is thicker. We haven't got the right ammunition and we haven't got the right tactics. We'll discuss perhaps some of the tactics as this story goes on. But what we really could have done with is a creeping barrage, one that protects the infantry as they're advancing. We haven't got that. We haven't yet got tanks. So this battle is is really about what we haven't got, but we nearly have. Because by the end of the Battle of the Somme, we are getting a lot of these things. So uh, the first uh, the first day, within the first hours, becomes a total disaster. The men cannot get across no man's land. Uh, it becomes a race. Do Can the Germans get up from underground, mount their machine guns, open fire before we can get to them? And the answer is yes, they can. And that's what happens. And so 60,000 casualties a lot of those casualties in the first few hours of the battle. So uh, truly appalling. And that is the worst uh, 24 hours in, in British military history. So 60,000 casualties. Of those 60,000, about a third uh, were killed outright. So so it's a destruction of many of the battalions that were raised specifically for the First World War from volunteers. So these are the PALS battalions. And this is the battle of the PALS battalions, these volunteer uh, soldiers who, who, who are here. The best, really, we'd have to say the PALS battalions are the best that Britain could could offer at that, uh, at that, that period. No conscription yet, or the conscription has come in, but they're not yet reaching the front. So most of these men are, are volunteers. 
along with territorial soldiers and, and regular soldiers, but of course the regular soldiers, and to a certain extent the territorials, have been doing their job up until this point in 1916, so they are very much denuded. Uh, not that many regular soldiers still here on the, on, on the front line. It's just a, an appalling disaster that first day. And, and we should, as you, as you mentioned before, we should point out that the Battle of the Somme went on for a very long time. And as we do more episodes of this podcast, we'll be revisiting the Somme and various actions involved in the, the later parts of the Battle of the Somme. But today we are going to talk about that first day, the, the famous first day on the Somme, the 1st of July 1916. And it's a very big area, so obviously we can't cover it in, in one, one bite. What, what small part of the battlefield are we looking at today, Pete? Right, we're going to have a little bit of a look at the battlefield around an area called the Sunken Sunken Lane. Now, the first thing I need to do before I go any further is just explain what a sunken lane is. What is it? Well, it sounds like it's a lane that's, that's sunk into the ground. And that's exactly what it is. The name really tells you. It's more interesting is how that occurs. What creates a sunken lane? Well, it's, it's age, it's time, it's weathering, it's wear, carts going up and down it. And it's normally on a hill. You have to say most of the of the really deep sunken roads are on hills. And, and a sunken lane is created by carts going up and down you can imagine the guys coming and leveling it when it gets rutted they throw out the stuff to the side chalk here it's a chalk landscape so they're throwing out the chalk to the side they're throwing out the mud to the sides hence the banks go up with the, the, the stuff coming out of the lane and the rain washes out the infill and they'd have to scrape it out again and throw it to the sides and so over centuries literally it, it sinks into the ground so when anybody mentions the sunken lane and uh, and the First World War and the Battle of the Somme, uh, to, to most Brits who have read or, or to anybody that's read anything ab- uh, about the war, then it will take them to a place called Beaumont Hamel. And so this is where you just outside of the small village of Beaumont Hamel in the sunken lane. Now, why it's really, really famous is because it was filmed at the time by a gentleman called Malins, who is the official cinematographer for the Battle of the Somme. So you have to say, well, that's odd. Well, it wasn't really, because the Battle of the Somme was hoping, you know, it was it was hoped by, by the, the military and even by the public who were aware of it, the Great Push, that we were going to, to walk over the Germans. So they thought, well, we need to film this. This will make a great you know, propaganda film. That's what it is, a propaganda film. So they're going to, they're going to film it. And Malins is the official cameraman. And this is one of the shots he did was, was looking down the sunk, sunken lane. So that's really why we're going to start in this sunken lane. And who were the troops that were attacking in this area on the 1st of July? Right, well, what we've got is he's actually filming the 1st Battalion of the Lancashire Fusiliers. So this is a, a regular uh, battalion. So these m- men will, will have seen action elsewhere, probably a lot of action, but there'll be an awful lot of, uh, of volunteers now who have joined them. Um, and um, it's a terrible it's a terrible piece of image. There's a lot of stills taken from the, from the footage, but in my view... Malin's filming down the sunken lane on that morning, and it's about twenty minutes, half an hour before uh, before the, uh, the whistles blew at uh, seven thirty in the morning. So it's uh, it's filming them waiting to go over the top. The sunken lane is actually in no man's land. It's in front of our frontline positions. We sapped out to the sunken lane. Uh, what's a sap? A sap is a trench that runs towards the enemy. So from our front line, we sapped out into the sunken lane and it gave us an advantage there, uh, you know, a, a good quarter of the way, probably a little bit more um, across no man's land in the sunken lane, waiting for the, the whistles to blow at, uh, at 7.15. And Malins is there to, to film uh, uh, the detonation of a mine. But before he films that, and we're going to talk about the very famous uh, Hawthorne mine, uh, which creates the, the, uh, the, the Hawthorne crater. 
um, he's going to film the infantry before that, before that mine detonates. And so that is what he's doing. He's, it's, it's a misty morning. So that's the other thing we have to think about. It's misty. It's daylight. It's, it's the middle of summer. So it's, it's warm. And we've got a ground mist that's billowing uh, around. Now that aids, aids him enormously. If you're carrying a, a mahogany, uh, camera, with glass plates uh, and a tripod, and you've got to get it into a position to actually film a battle, well, A, you're going to get yourself killed, and B, it's, it's, it's difficult. But he, in the mist, manages to, to get across into the sunken lane and to film these guys before they go over the, over the top. And it is a truly uh, just so a moving bit of, bit of footage, because you know these men, this is going to be a disaster, these men are going to go over the top and they're going to be gunned down almost as they climb out of their sunken lane, uh, and so looking at them, you can see that they're probably a little aware of what is the possibility of going that's going to happen to them, so they're not keen to be filmed, they're fiddling with their buttons they're checking their bayonets are fitted properly, they're kind of scowling at the, uh, at the camera and some work was done uh, a few years ago now for a documentary and then a book about this uh, Malins and his film work and they brought in a lip reader to have a look at what the guys were saying because they're obviously speaking as they're looking at the camera the the the, the guy that was brought into uh, to lip read it couldn't he couldn't read it he couldn't tell what they were saying and they realized that they had very strong northern accents uh, from the Lancashire uh, mill towns and so they had to uh, basically send uh, him away to to go and uh, learn the, the accent and then come back and try and lip read again and he was able to lip read and what he discovered in the main it's profanities these guys do not want to be filmed they are looking up at him and saying on your bike I don't want you here I don't want you filming me at the moment um this is not a good thing to film i'm terrified i'm nervous i'm trying to kind of get used to going what's going to happen and, and the guy's trying to film me so to my mind it's a, a terribly moving section of film of the guys in the in the sunken lane and that mist behind them which enabled him to get his camera out there it's, it, it gives it a almost a surreal quality here they are in their black and white uh, standing out with the mist behind them looking down the sunken lane uh, and uh, and along uh, out into no man's land it's well said, Pete, and the, the thing I always say when I visit a battlefield and explore fighting and warfare is that being in an army, being in a war, is about losing your sense of individuality. That even when we look back on it now through the pages of history, we think about large formations of men. We, we think about them fairly two-dimensionally. Footage like the Malins footage in the sunken lane blows that apart. You see these men as individuals. You see them talking. You see what they're doing in the moments before an attack. Effectively, ordinary moments, what men would be doing today, you know, what they've done throughout the centuries before they've gone into an attack. And as you say, knowing that so many of them would be gunned down uh, as they left that sunken road, it's just extraordinary footage. I think it's extraordinary as well, because even even in modern times, you you don't get that very often. You do not get a cameraman in the right place, if, if that is the right place, to film a group of men who, who are basically going to die in, in, in the few minutes after he's filmed it. And you, you don't see that very often, even today. So so it's unusual, you know, for over 100 years ago, for a, a cameraman with a, a mahogany-cased camera you know, and, and glass plates for for his, his stills to, to be able to film it and hand-crank that, 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 that camera there. Extraordinary, extraordinary. And how many of the men were killed or wounded in that attack that took place very shortly after that footage was filmed? 486 of the uh, of the men uh, from the battalion were were actually killed. A thousand men in the battalion, but not a th- there's never a thousand men go go into the attack. So probably only 800, perhaps even slightly less, went into the attack. So it's an enormous number of uh, of men were killed uh, in that attack from that battalion. 
So, Pete, we're standing now in the, the sunken road. If we if we followed in the footsteps of those men and climbed up out of the sunken road, what, what are we seeing as we look across the fields? It's a, it's a very moving thing to do, and with uh, groups, where, uh, I always do that. We, we, you can actually climb up through the through the bushes and the undergrowth up onto the onto the ridge, and uh, in the mist, if you get it right, looking across, you, you've got an open landscape and then a wood on the uh, on the other side, and that German position in that wood is known as the Bergwerk. And the the Germans were waiting with their machine guns across there. And if you then start to walk across the field, and interestingly, that field very often hasn't got crops in it. They just started putting a few more trees in, which I'm a bit disappointed about because it's going to spoil that, that immediate feel of standing up and being able to look right across to the German lines. And it's probably, I don't know, 200 metres, no, no more. And in between those two positions, the only thing that you can now see that interrupts that that general flow, if you were to walk all the way to the German positions, which of course nobody did, nobody got into the German positions here, there is now a little cemetery uh, in the middle. But it's uh, exceedingly moving to stand up and to uh, and, and to look across towards the German lines and and the tree line, which marks very clearly because that tree line gives you a, an immediate identification of where the the German front line was. Well, leaving the sunken road now, we're going to walk further along it and we're going to come to a memorial and uh, it's quite a spectacular memorial tell us uh, tell us all about this memorial at the end of the sunken lane yeah this memorial is to the argyle and sutherland highlanders and more particularly the eighth uh, battalion the first of the eighth battalion um it's a beautiful enormous memorial massively enhanced in recent years because it was getting enclosed by trees that r- went all the way around it they've cleared those trees uh, a lot of work's been done in this area recently um and it gives it a it's been cleaned up a beautiful beautiful uh, celtic cross enormous um celtic cross emblazoned with all of the battle honours of the battalion throughout the whole of the war. This is where they commemorate their, their service uh, uh, during the Great War here at the Sunken Lane at, uh, at Beaumont uh, Hamill. Now, interestingly, they're not commemorating the 1st of July because that is not when they were they were here. They were actually here in the November in the final uh, push to, um, to take... Uh, this area, 13th of November, and so it's commemorating their success uh, in the Highland Division. They fought here in the 51st uh, Division, the Highland Division, and so this is where they decided that was the best place to place their memorial to commemorate their service uh, during the Great War. So it's, it's a beautiful memorial and well worth spending some time to have a look at. It's one of the highlights I found the first time I walked the Somme is these divisional memorials or these battalion memorials that just spring up at these um, you know, various places around the battlefield. And you know that something important occurred there wherever you see one of these memorials because the the units involved placed them there to commemorate their service, didn't they? They did indeed, and this one was inaugurated in 1924. Um, so it's it's one of the the early memorials to be built, and is actually looked after by the Commonwealth War Graves. There's this big kind of it's difficult. I don't understand quite what, how this happens, but some memorials are looked after by the Commonwealth War Graves, others are looked after by the communes or by the the, uh, uh, the associations that that built the memorials. But in this case, because it was built in 24 uh, 1924, then it is looked after by the Commonwealth War Graves, and it is superb. It's kept in fantastic condition. It, it, the, the lawns around it are beautifully manicured. And it's always well worth climbing up onto the memorial, to, to the plinth of the memorial, out of the sunken lane. Because if you look behind it, that is where, it's three or four hundred metres, but is where Malins is going to move later on when he films the detonation of the mine. And we'll come back to that. But uh, So it's always worthwhile climbing up to the memorial and looking behind you, back towards our lines. Uh, so back towards the British front line, remembering that the sunken lane is in no man's land. Um, and you'll get an idea of where Malins moved to. So after being in the sunken lane, he 
moves across to, to film the detonation at the start of the battle. And moving on from the memorial, uh, we come to a cemetery. Tell us, uh, tell us about the Beaumont Hamel British Cemetery. Yeah, well, Beaumont Hamel British Cemetery is the one that I described as you climb out of the sunken lane and look towards the German lines. Then it is a, a very thin strip cemetery, so only two rows of graves. Um, and it's called Beaumont Hamel British Cemetery, which is a, a sensible name for it. Uh, just as a matter of interest, the naming of, of the cemeteries was arbitrary. There is no set down routine that all the cemeteries are named after the nearest village or, or the battle. It's arbitrary. It is effectively the guy that kind of sticks the, uh, the, the, the marker and says, we're going to build a cemetery here. Uh, then he, he's the one that gets to name it. And very often the, the names remained. And in this case, Beaumont Hamel British Cemetery is what it is. Uh, the British part, just as a matter of interest, it just means that it's not German. It's not Belgian. It's not French. Uh, it is a British cemetery. But for Britain, you have to read to a certain extent the whole of the, of the Commonwealth, the empire. Um, so it's uh, only a small cemetery. It's 179 uh, burials in these two parallel uh, lines. Um, of that 179, uh, 82 of them are, are unknown, so we don't know uh, who they are. And just as a matter of interest, it doesn't just include guys. You imagine it would be full of guys of the uh, uh, of the Lancashire Fusiliers who had been killed during that attack as they tried to cross over this landscape, uh, but that's that's not the case. There, there are only thirty eight men that are buried in there who were killed on the on the first of July, um, because it's a, it's a, a concentration cemetery. Um, it's going to be created after the Germans withdraw back to the Hindenburg Line, so it's really can only be created in early nineteen seventeen uh, when they can gather up the men from that area uh, and bury them uh, in, in this, uh, this cemetery. A beautiful little cemetery and, uh, and it just, just works very well because it takes you that little bit further into no man's land and gives you that little bit of an extra view towards the German frontline positions. The fact that it's a long and skinny cemetery, does that indicate that these men were buried in, uh, in long trenches when they were brought in? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's quite likely again, they're quite close together. They're not touching. Um, so it's not, sometimes it's, there's no, we don't know. There's no way we can actually know exactly how the men were buried. And you get clues by looking at the headstones. Uh, and as, as we've said in the previous podcast that touching headstones normally indicates a, a trench burial. Uh, these, these are not actually touching. They're, they're side by side. Um, but what, what, uh, you, you may not be the case. The men may not be directly beneath them here. We're not quite sure. One of the reasons why we're not sure is because this cemetery was very badly damaged in 1918 during the German Spring Offensive. They overran this area again, so we know it was, it was, it, we know it was damaged. So we're not quite so sure exactly where the men are, but I just presume that they're below their, their, their markers, but they may be a little, a, a little, a little away from their markers here. And now leaving the cemetery, Pete, what's the next destination on our tour? Well, we're just going to walk up to the back onto the onto the road that uh, runs uh, f- following the, the the attack, um, and we're walking towards Beaumont Hamel, the village itself. So we're going to go past the uh, the German front line, or in fact, over the German uh, front line. Now, there's a wood on the left hand side, the one that I've been mentioning, that marks their the front line, and there is some hope that in the near future some of that wood may be cleared, because there are the remnants of German trenches in there. At the moment, we can't go into it, and it's uh, very overgrown, so it would be very difficult to get into it full stop but there is a hope that perhaps in the future we may we may see a little a little more of that and then we're just going to walk into the outskirts of the town before turning around and coming back um, up to uh, a flagpole 
so you're thinking a flagpole, uh, but the flagpole is commemorating the 51st division and it's 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 battle to get through here in the November. So on the 13th of November, as we know, they they successfully took Beaumont Hamill and they put up a flagpole. Seems an odd thing to put up. It's been recently been renovated uh, on the 90th anniversary. It was renovated in, in the November. Um, I was there for for the unveiling of the new flagpole. If you can unveil a flagpole. And, um, yeah, and so there it is, uh, just uh, commemorating the service of the 51st uh, Division. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. ...fighting in the, in the village. So it's, uh, it's, it's nice. I love these little, tiny, small memorials, and they're everywhere. And a lot of people miss them. You can drive past the flagpole without even stopping and noticing that, that it's there. Thankfully, now on that 90th anniversary, they actually put up an explanatory panel, so there's a little bit more to catch your eye. But in the in the old days, it was just a flagpole, and and for most of us visiting the battlefields, you're going from A to B, and you know where you're going to. You probably wouldn't have even noticed it. But uh, yeah, it's a, a a nice little addition to the battlefield. Pete, one thing that strikes me as you're describing these memorials is that there seem to be a lot of memorials to the November battles on the Somme, which is when victory was achieved effectively, when the battle ended and when they captured the ground that they'd failed so spectacularly to capture in the earlier parts of the battle. Is that the way the Somme battlefields tend to be commemorated? It's it's the same as Fromel, for example. Fromel, the famous Australian battlefield that we discussed in an earlier podcast, does not get a lot of commemoration because it was such a disaster. And units that fought there tended to focus more on their successes later in the war or later in 1916. Is it the same on the Somme? Are there a number of battle, a number of memorials to the 1st of July fighting, or does it all tend to be from later in the campaign? That's a very good question, Matt, actually. And it's one I had to just, while you were talking, I was having a think about it. Um, no, I think there are probably more memorials to the 1st of July. It's a, it's a, a kind of a, a, an Anglo-Saxon trait, isn't it? We like to commemorate a disaster. So, yes, there are memorials to successful actions or to the later actions, but I think it, they will be outnumbered considerably by memorials commemorating the disasters of the 1st of July, regiments that had terrible, terrible disasters. Um, I was actually involved in uh, in the, the raising of a memorial to the Dorset Regiment, uh, which had terrible disasters on the, or terrible casualties, should I say, on the 1st of July. And that memorial was placed where those casualties took place, as near as we could get it, uh, to, to where that happened, very close to Teepval. Uh, the Teepval Ridge and the Teepval Memorial, enormous memorial to the missing. Uh, so, no, so I think we're still raising them. We're still, we're still putting them in now. But, I, and I have this, I think, I think it's fairly, fairly obvious that we do tend to place them where there were terrible casualties. Of course, 
terrible casualties are, are not not a good thing to to commemorate. But wherever you have terrible casualties, there's always enormous bravery. Uh, and I think that's what we're commemorating. We're not commemorating the disaster. We're not really commemorating the, the terrible casualties. We're commemorating the, 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 the grit of the men that, that fought there and, and the limited success that they may or may not have had but under terrible circumstances. So leaving the flagpole, we're now going to visit one of the most important and iconic sites probably on the entire Somme battlefield. What is this huge hole in the ground as we as we approach it, Pete? Yeah, the, uh, I mean, it's extraordinary. We have to leave the road, climb up a, a new track that's been, in the old days, you, you kind of climbed over a farmer's fence and wandered across his, his, his paddock. Now it's, it's very well uh, organised uh, and uh, we can walk up a trail that takes us to the Hawthorne uh, Ridge Mine Crater. It's a double crater, interestingly, so it was... It wasn't popular to visit for many, many years. It was difficult to visit. It had trees in it. You couldn't really see what was going on. And so people didn't make the effort to go and have a look. But recently, a society has uh, has uh, leased it. They've got, a, I think it's a 90-year lease on it. And you can now, uh, they've created a footpath. You can go up to it. They've cleared some of the trees. And we can now clearly see this double crater because it was blown on the 1st of July, but it was also blown on the 13th of November. So we've got two craters side by side. The stunning part of all of this is, is uh, Malins. He, Geoffrey uh, Malins, he had moved back, as I described earlier, behind the memorial uh, to the Argyll and Southern Highlanders into a viewpoint where he could look across no man's land obliquely and he was ready for the uh, the detonation of the, the mine. It blew 10 minutes before uh, 7.30. And an odd time, there's been lots of debate over the years as to as to why and should it have been blown at that time. It, effectively, it's a discussion between two senior officers who can't quite make their mind up as to when it should be blown. But it's blown 10 minutes early. Now, actually, it didn't help in a way. It killed an awful lot of Germans, as you'd expect, when it detonated. But that 10 minutes enabled the Germans to bring up reinforcements, to bring up new sets of guns and to cover the uh, the hole in their line that had been created because it blows right underneath a, a fairly prominent machine gun position that uh, covers the valley uh, and the landscape in, in front uh, of it. So it's uh, it, was, it was a good position that the Germans had created this, this nest of machine guns. Um, destroyed, but reinforced by these new guns, and so we didn't have any success here. It's a, this is a, a story of of total lack of success. Anyway, back to the crater. So looking down into the crater, extraordinary. We can now walk down into it. We can uh, have a wander about. There are just one or two panels describing what you're looking at. Now, I think that's a good thing because I think you can overdo it. You can put too many things in that tell people what's going on. And in fact, eventually they interfere with our view uh, and our ability to kind of uh, to to imagine if there are all of these things to read. So they're putting limited uh, panels in describing what's going on and the rest of it is up to you to use your imagination. It's very easy to to get the gist of where the Germans are because of that line of trees to our right as we're looking towards the British lines, and we can see clearly the sunken the sunken lane where we've uh, where, where we were earlier and across to the British front line. So it's that's exactly what the Germans wanted. They wanted that view, and we have it as well. And in fact, we have a slightly better view because in detonating these two mines, it, it's giving you a little bit more of a lip, and so we get a better view across no man's land. So it's a uh, it's it, it's it's a fantastic thing to go and have a look at. I would highly recommend that anybody who wants to follow in our footsteps then go and have a look at the uh, at the mine the Hawthorne Ridge mine craters fantastic Pete we're going to talk about these great mine craters that remain on the western front in in future walks but this is probably a, an opportune moment since it's our first encounter with one 
to just talk about this whole aspect of warfare and, and, and something that I think people who talk about the First World War will find quite extraordinary if they don't know the story. Tell us about the tunnelers and the creation of these mines under front lines. Well, we need to go back into almost a, a prehistory to have a think about uh, castles and keeps and, and fortifications. How, how do you take, let's think of a, a walled castle, a big walled castle, how do you take it? Well, one of the things that you can do is try firing projectiles at, uh, at it, whether it be by catapult or cannon. But another method is to go underneath it, is to to start a tunnel. And that's where the term sapping comes in from. And of course, the, the rank of an engineer, a private in the engineers, is a sapper. So they would sap towards the, the, the castle. They would then eventually go underground because it was safer to go underground. Your enemy doesn't know quite where you've gone and he can't uh, he can't hit you with, uh, with arrows or spears. And they would basically take out the foundations of the, uh, the keep in the castle put in pit props, props to hold it up, then set a fire. That fire would burn out all the props at the same time and having taken the foundations out, the, the keep would then fall over and you had a breach in the walls. So if we then go to, to, to modern times or to the, to the Great War, German trenches, what's the way of getting rid of, of, a, of a German fortification if you're about to assault? Same thing. Um, but slightly different because we now have gunpowder and explosives and amatol. And so what we're going to do is is tunnel beneath the German position, a suitable position. We're going to create a void and we're going to fill it with explosives. In this case, it was over 40,000 pounds of, uh, of explosives, of aminol, um, that was placed there. So enormous uh, amount of explosives and we're going to detonate it. Sounds easy. Well, of course, the Germans are not stupid. The Germans know what we're going to attempt. So there is countermining constantly going on, trying to intercept our shafts as we're trying to get underneath uh, the, the German positions. So it's a, it's a part of the war that for many, many years was almost forgotten, that this had been going on, all of these engineers, these tunnelers, these miners on both sides working and countermining and blowing something called a camouflet to, uh, uh, camouflet to try and destroy uh, the... Um, your enemy's uh, uh, shafts, their, their mines. So it was a, an extraordinary war, almost forgotten, and this is part of it. This is one that was successfully driven under the German positions, but not blown at the right time. But it was a success in that way, and uh, it's a part of the war that, that will carry on right until we get back into a war of movement. It only works while we've got static lines, of course. In a war of movement, no point in tunnelling. Uh, but it's it's extraordinary. And as you say, this is a double mine was blown again in the uh, November attacks, indicating that the first one had gone pretty wrong because uh, the, the fact that by the time they came back in November, they needed to blow up the German positions yet again. So the Germans were obviously still holding these very strong positions. Yeah, completely. Yeah, the, the whole attack was a was a disaster in, in this area, and in fact, Malins is going to film some of this as well. And um, I'll come back to that in a, in a second because he he films uh, he films the men in the sunken road, he films the detonation of the mine, and then he films part of the infantry attack, which is extraordinary in this area as well. But it's it's going to be a complete disaster. No success here whatsoever. Effectively. We have a, a good a good marker that tells us where we get and success and where we don't, and that is the main road that is running um, between Albert and a place called Bapome. And in very central, in the middle of that road, is is the, the town of Poissiers, very much an Australian uh, battlefield. So that is marking the, the central axis of the of the assault. If you imagine Poissiers and that main road to the left of it, looking from our perspective, looking towards the German lines to the left of it, everything goes very 
very, very badly wrong. To the right of it, we get limited success, and limited success leads to more success, and so we get we get a movement. But on the left, and we are very firmly on the left-hand side of the battlefield, no success at all. Just nothing went well here at all. Nothing went right, and any limited success that we did have was then uh, literally stifled because the Germans could transfer men around because they'd already stopped the British attacks in, in that area. And in fact, the only success that takes place in that area that, that, that was su- successful to a degree where they got into the German lines and held them were the Irish, uh, the Northern Irish, fighting at um, the Ulster Tower. Um, so the Ulster Tower now being a memorial to them. So it's a it's a, a memorial to the Ulstermen fighting there. And that is really the only success on this side of the battlefield. There was very little else that went well. Well, it's such a remarkable spot. It's it's wonderful that the mine crater has been preserved. It's wonderful the work the association is currently doing to to make it accessible to people because now for the first time in a very long time, really since the war, you can now go and walk and explore that crater and walk down into the bottom of it. And unlike the other great crater on the Somme, which is Loch Nagar Crater over near La Boiselle, it's completely inaccessible. You can't walk into the crater. You absolutely can in Hawthorne Ridge. And I find it a lot more moving uh, it's still it's still uh, it's still quite wooded. There's still a lot of trees in there, and the first time I went there on a misty November morning, it was uh, it was very moving indeed to uh, to stand in the bottom of that crater. Yeah, I agree entirely, and and it has it has it's it's ongoing. The enhancement of it is ongoing, but without interfering with it. And I think it's the same association which is looking at the wood opposite, and hopefully that we will have access into some of that in the future as well, so we can link that into the the German lines uh, on the other side of the of the road, uh, and that will enhance it even further. There's also work being done from an archaeological point of view, so it's 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 very good, it's excellent, uh, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great. Uh, uh, a great new new site to visit, even if you've been before to the Western Front and to the Somme battlefields. Uh, if you haven't been to the uh, the Hawthorne Ridge uh, crater, then then make sure you do. It's great. Take us to our next extraordinary site, Pete. After we leave the Hawthorne Ridge crater, well, this is uh, even better, really. There's a little cemetery that's beyond the Hawthorne Ridge. So we're, we're heading, kind of climbing uphill slightly and heading towards, actually we're heading towards the Memorial Park uh, for the Newfoundlanders, Newfoundland uh, Memorial Park at Beaumont Hamill. Um, uh, we can't get into it from this direction, but in between us at the crater and the memorial park, then we have another little cemetery called Hawthorne Ridge Cemetery Number 1. Now, that was always an awkward cemetery to get to because there wasn't a laid-down path. There is no path to get to it. You had to literally, and when the crops are in, the farmer very often would plough up any kind of footprints or, or route that people were using. And I remember the very first time I visited it, I went round and round and attacked it from different directions and thought, well, I, I don't know how you're supposed to get to this cemetery. And you have to eventually walk through the farmer's crops. There was there was no other way to get to it. So very odd. One of the few that had no recognised path to get to it. Well, in creating this new uh, way of exploring the Hawthorne Ridge Mine Crater, they've now linked it. So you can go from the Hawthorne uh, Crater, you can now walk through to the um, to the cemetery. So it's great. It's another addition. And what, what makes it even more moving, many of the men that are buried in the cemetery are those that were trying to take the crater on the 1st uh, of July. So it, it's a beautiful uh, little cemetery, 150 burials within the cemetery. What I haven't mentioned, actually, is all of these numbers, normally over 100 for the, the cemeteries, uh, they have to be, because if the cemetery gets to less than 40, the French and the Belgian governments have decided that the cemeteries could not remain. They have to be above 40 burials to remain. So here we have 150. 
Um, 67 of those uh, 150 are unknown. Uh, and again, that's, that's a fairly kind of, uh, the, the proportion during the Battle of the Somme of, of, of people that are recovered unknown is quite high. It's not as high as when, when we will visit and talk about the, the burials at Passchendaele, uh, but it's still quite high. And that is because a lot of these guys laid out for a long time. It was not easy to get to their bodies because these attacks were unsuccessful. Uh, it meant we couldn't get the bodies in. We couldn't rescue the, the, the or not rescue, but we couldn't recover the the remains of the men who had been killed. So it takes some time to get to the bodies, and in that, that period, then a lot of them have lost their identities. So we have 67 uh, unknown uh, here. I think it's perhaps one of the most moving sites because of the 16th uh, Battalion of the Middlesex Regiment, which was known as the Public Schools Battalion. And, and they are there's quite a few of them buried in this cemetery. So what were the Public Schools Battalion? Well, this was a battalion of men who'd all been to public school. So you have to say, hang on a minute, these are the guys that are well-educated. The public school system in Britain means it's a private school. You have to pay for it. So this is the future officers of the British Army fighting in a battalion of future officers and that's where you have to look at it so it's a very odd odd setup so these are all men who went to uh to private privately educated joined uh, a battalion the 16th battalion of the middlesex regiment and this is where they attack this is their first attack um and uh yeah it's 524 casualties so again you're looking at almost uh you know if you're only attacking with 800 it's it's most of the battalion uh became a casualty I had a very moving tour a few years ago where I took a group of uh, men who had been to a public school uh, around the battlefield and they wanted to follow in a certain soldier's footsteps who'd been very badly wounded during the fighting. And so obviously one of my first questions was, why are we following this guy and, and what is he to all of you, you gentlemen? And it's because he was their Latin master and their swimming coach when they were young men. And all they could remember of him, really, that, that, that horrified them as young boys was that he had a terribly scarred back. Uh, and that was because, of course, he'd been very badly wounded with the battalion here. He'd lain out in no man's land for eight hours before a stretcher team managed to get to him in the dark and, and bring him in. Um, and so that's why we, we were there. And I found it very moving that they were, they were commemorating and celebrating a man that was long, long since dead, but, uh, they remembered him because of his scarred back and uh, teaching them to swim at uh, a public school. Um, so it's a, a beautiful little cemetery, uh, again, uh, laid out uh, with a, a little uh, rubble wall around it and uh, a couple of trees and just a few lines. Again, a clue to the burials here is a lot of the uh, the graves are multiple burials. So in other words, there's more than one man in each grave. And that's normally a sign that uh, they've been cleared from the battlefield and, and buried here. And of course, we know they had to be because this was not taken until the November and it still wasn't safe until the following year. So this cemetery, again, could not be created until, uh, uh, until the Germans started withdrawing back to the Hindenburg line. We have a chap uh, here, I've got a little quote about a chap called Private Derek uh, McCulloch. Um, and uh, this is uh, it's terrible, really. It's just to show you the type of wounds, really, and, uh, and the experience. Uh, he had his uh, right eye shot away, and soon afterwards he was hit by shrapnel. Um, my collarbone, this is his quote, my collarbone, shoulder blade, and two ribs were broken, and I had a bullet in my left lung. I managed to crawl back to our lines. Uh, so I think it's ju just a, a, extraordinary that a, a man can be so kind of hit by machine gun fire, because this is what this is here. It is predominantly the machine gun fire, but he still knew that the only way he was going to survive really was getting back to his uh, his, his front line. He went on to have a full and uh, unsuccessful life, but uh, yeah, uh, uh, very badly shot up uh, in the middle of no man's land.
And this, I remember from visiting the cemetery that there's also unusually there's a private headstone here. There's 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 more than just the the Commonwealth War Graves um, cemetery markers here, aren't there? Yeah, it's one of the one of the other aspects of exploring the cemeteries of the First World War is you have to think about when was the were the decisions made to have a headstone that every single headstone looks the same. Um, well, it was made fairly fairly quickly after the end of the war, but not quick enough in some ways because very often uh, men and certainly the friends of men who were killed clubbed together to um, to ensure that they had something better than the wooden standard wooden cross that was going to be put above your grave. And in this case, it, it was a plaque. It's a, it's a plaque and it's actually from the, the family. Um, and, um, they had organized it immediately after the war or perhaps even during the war when they were told where he was buried. And, uh, and certainly there were companies in Amiens who were making these marble, uh, headstones and, and marble plaques to either be screwed to the wooden crosses or to be put instead of the wooden crosses. So when the Commonwealth War Graves or the Imperial War Graves, as it was, decided that everybody had to have the same headstone, they then had a problem. What do we do with these these memorials that have already been paid for and put up uh, on the graves of, of soldiers uh, who died during the fighting? And it was decided that they could remain. I think it's the right decision to make. They felt that they would try and put up a Commonwealth War Graves headstone and then their private uh, memorial, their private headstone would also exist. If they couldn't, then they allowed the, the big original one to remain. And so there are several cemeteries where there is, there is no um, Commonwealth War Graves headstone. There is just this private memorial, a uh, big, big headstone. In this case, it was decided that the, the small, marble memorial which had been screwed onto the cross i suspect uh, could be allowed to remain and so it's still there so we have a private memorial uh, alongside sitting alongside the commonwealth war graves memorial i haven't mentioned his name but um he was a second lieutenant e.r heaton uh, he's the guy that's got the private memorial you'll spot it straight away as you walk through the gate it's on your left hand side so it's it's and it's very obvious as, as you can imagine these things stand out because they're not uh, the headstones that we're used to seeing well, this cemetery, Pete, is a beautiful spot to end the tour, but there's actually a slight bonus visit we're going to make. Only if, as we've said in previous podcasts, if there's no crops in the field, this is not possible to do if there are crops in the field because the farmer will be will not take kindly to tourists trampling his, uh, his, his carefully ploughed crops. But if there's no crops in the field, where are we going to go now? Yeah, well, from here, we can actually uh, head across, walking across this, this field, if it's possible, to uh, Y Ravine. Now, Y Ravine is a very strongly defended German position. It's where the Germans brought in their men into the front line. And it's actually part of the memorial park for the Newfoundland Regiment uh, at, at Beaumont Hamill. So their memorial park the, behind the German lines, we get Y Ravine. So we're looking at it from a, an odd point uh, here. And it's well worth looking at it from the German perspective. So you're looking across the ravine and then into the memorial park um, and it really shows you how deep this this was it was actually a chalk quarry why ravine is a chalk quarry and it's where the germans really went underground the germans here as we know were underground everywhere the underground positions underground headquarters and here they use the Y Ravine to get to their frontline trenches because it's already into the landscape you can tunnel in from the the base of it and and then enter your trenches from tunnels uh, of course it saves enormous numbers of lives because they don't have to travel through trenches to get to the front line they're coming in from underground so why ravine is a spectacular it's it's well worth looking at very steep sides we can't walk into it and you can't even walk into it from the memorial park as well if you're in the memorial park you're not allowed into it either but it's good to get a view into it from the german perspective so yeah so it's a good way to end the tour 
Well, Peter, it's just been a, a wonderful journey. Thank you so much. I, I always enjoy getting out and exploring these Somme battlefields with you, Pete, because you just have a wonderful perspective on uh, on the, the sacrifice and the achievements that went on in this most important corner of the Somme. So I've really enjoyed it, Pete. Have you enjoyed this walk across the Somme battlefields? Oh, fantastic. It's, it's one of my favourite walks. And if you get the weather right, uh, uh, a, a feeling of a, of a, of a summer morning, then uh, yeah, it, uh, it's very, very moving. It's a very moving place to be. I should mention as well that uh, a year or two ago I, I made a video which is on YouTube available to download called Walking the Battle of the Somme and it covers several of the sites that we've just discussed in this walk, including many others as well. Uh, but uh, check that out on our YouTube video on the Living History YouTube page, Walking the Battle of the Somme, to see the Hawthorne Crater and some other famous sites. Pete, it's been wonderful. Until next time, thank you for joining me on the battlefields. Pleasure, Matt. Enjoyable. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 